are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enduring Word live question and answer for Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. Uh, Today is Groundhog Day, so happy Groundhog Day to all of you. And apparently, the groundhog, Punxsutawney Phil, as his name is, apparently he saw his shadow this morning, so I guess that supposedly means that we get six more weeks of winter. We'll see. We'll see how all that works out. So, always... Um, a great time to be able to get together with everybody um, here for the question and answer for Enduring Word. I, like many of you, like to tune in uh, weekly when Pastor David comes on and and shares some answers to questions. Um, But Pastor David is not here this morning or this afternoon, as you can tell. He and his wife, Ingalil, they are in Honduras. And uh, Ingalil, his wife, has been doing a dental outreach there for the last week or so. And Pastor David is going to be sharing at a church there this weekend. So I would ask you to keep them both in your prayers as they are out on the field doing work. Um, I am Miles Benedictus. I have the privilege of serving as one of the board members at Enduring Word, as well as one of the board members at Blue Letter Bible. And I'm also privileged to be the pastor of a church in North San Diego County, California, called Cross Connection. And... You know, here in San Diego, even though it is Groundhog Day and apparently we're going to get six more weeks of winter, I'm perfectly fine with this. We have like a beautifully clear, mostly clear day, 64 degrees here in San Diego. I apologize if you don't have the same kind of weather today wherever you are. Anyway, Pastor David asked me to fill in for him on the broadcast today, so here we are. And before I get started with the questions that we have, as we normally start with a question that's kind of a lead-in question that I'll talk about in a moment, I wanted to share a few other things that we at Enduring Word are so blessed to be able to provide to you. Of course, you have these weekly um, question and answers that Pastor David does that are absolutely great. It's amazing to see just this last week moved past 100,000 subscribers. Thank you all for subscribing to that. I know David said that last week, but I want to share with you a couple of other things that I hope will be a further blessing to you from Enduring Word. First is something that you are probably aware of, and that is our mobile app for iOS and Android phones and tablets. And um, I hope that you've already checked that out, but if you haven't, you can go to whatever app store, the iOS app store, Apple app store, or the Android Play store, and download the Enduring Word app. We're so grateful for a couple, a husband and wife team, that actually live here in San Diego as well. They're kind of like a a modern-day Priscilla and Aquila, and their names are Paul and Diane. And Paul and Diane, they have been hard at work over the last year developing our mobile apps for us, and they have been adding all kinds of new features to them, doing an amazing work. And it really is a, a neat story that Pastor David had sent out a email about a year ago just asking people to pray for our app development. We were having some issues with that. And Paul and Diane reached out to us and they just felt that they might be able to fill a need. And they've been such a huge blessing to Enduring Words. So make sure you check out the app. I think that it will be a great encouragement to you. And then the second thing that I want to share with you today, if I can 
actually bring this up. We'll see if I can. Is something that is new that we are going to be providing uh, beginning today. It actually goes live today. If you go to Enduring Words website, there is something new that will pop up there on the website. And we have a pop-up that comes up. We've got something new, the post. And also in the upper right-hand corner in our menu is a link to the post. And basically what the post is, is something that launched today. And this is a new feature of the website that is going to be a collaborative blog from the Enduring Word team. And so every single week we have new content that will be going up on there from our board members and also some other pastors that are connected to Enduring Word. So we're really looking forward to this. I hope that you go take a look at it. It's just simply post.enduringword.com or if you're at the Enduring Word website, you can click on the pop-up that comes up or you could also just click on the menu item up in the upper right-hand corner that says the post. And if you go there, you can sign up, you can subscribe to it, and that will send you an email when we have new content that's going to be coming out on the post. So I really do hope that you will take a look at the post. Um, like I said, it's live today. We'll be putting up new content there every single week. And um, hopefully you'll take a look and also share that content. And you can also collaborate with us. You can comment in the comment section there. And those who are writing those posts, they'll interact with you on there as well. So with that, I guess that we should probably get into the questions today. Um, as I shared early, earlier, and as you already know, if you've been a part of the live stream every single week, Pastor David typically begins with a lead-in question and um, something that someone had sent ahead beforehand. And so I'm going to continue with that today, talking about uh, what I think is a kind of rather interesting subject or an issue that comes up from time to time when we find ourselves in conversation with people generally who are not necessarily Christians or not really churchgoers. Maybe you're having a conversation with a, a coworker or a family member, a friend, and conversations can sometimes delve into the political areas where you start to talk about policy and political priorities and things like that. And it's not uncommon when we're having those conversations for individuals of faith, Christians, to be informed by the person who they're talking to that you cannot legislate morality. And I have come across this a number of times. Maybe you have as well. This statement is often used as a way to kind of dismiss, if you will, the moral concerns of conservatives and to argue that laws should be based solely on practical or rational considerations rather than moral values. And frequently, this bold assertion is kind of an intimidation tactic, and it's intended to shut down debate. But the, the question really is, is this dismissal valid? Is it true that you cannot legislate morality? Now, before I can even really get into the exact question, I do think it's helpful to just consider for a moment the different words that are used, the terms there. We, we need really to adequately assess that proposition. You cannot legislate morality, but you can't until you really get an agreed upon definition for the words that are being used. So first, even just the first word in that, you cannot legislate morality, the word you. We have to ask when someone says that, who is the you that you are speaking of? If the you of the proposition is directed singularly at 
an individual, a person, you singularly, you cannot legislate morality, then it is likely valid to challenge an individual as to whether or not they intend to impose their own personal moral proclivities upon people in society. If that were the intent, then we might, as I'll share a little bit more later, we might hardly agree with that proposition. You individually can't impose your morality on other people. However, if the you of that statement is the corporate, what we might say, the royal you, then we do have to think deeply about the truth of that claim. Western societies, United States, I think of you know, Canada, Western European nations, and so forth, they're largely democratic. So it is the people or their democratically elected representatives that enact the laws. As is stated in what's uh, referred to as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the will of the people shall be the basis of the authority of government. The laws instituted by the democratically elected legislative representatives are, or should be in theory, they are to be the consensus of the electorate, the people who put them into office. And they are the ones who are determining the rightness or the wrongness, really the morality of behavior in that, that society or culture. So without even getting past the first word of that, you cannot legislate morality. This issue really does bring up some, some important things for us to consider as it relates to that. Who, if anyone, has the right or the authority to legislate? That, that really is a, a heavy question. And you can't just dismissively overlook it like someone might be asserting that you need to do when they question you about your views. But for the second time, we kind of need to move away from the word you and then to the word cannot. If this word cannot, you cannot legislate morality. If this is like a declared impossibility, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment as well. If this is like a declared impossibility in an emphatic sense, then it calls into question the possibility of ever establishing any sort of civil society in, in any place. Since, we, since uh, very few people in the Western world would regard it as impossible to have any sort of legislated laws that establish a civil society, then I would grant that the word cannot there is not a declared impossibility, but rather it's more of an ought not. You should not. It's kind of an ethical statement. You should not legislate morality. And this becomes a problematic situation as even just this statement is an imposition of a moral sort of view, as we'll see in a moment. Third word there, you, you cannot legislate morality. An understanding of the word legislation is important, and this will become clear in a moment as well. But at this point, we must at least recognize that for any group of people to function as a community, it requires that there be some sort of code or rule of behavior, which we would call law. There has to be something that we agree upon as this is right and this is wrong for any group to work, which is one of the reasons why I think that we're going to have or potentially could have many significant problems in the future because there's just not a lot of agreement in our culture as to what is right and wrong. But an individual or group that sets a system of law, that is a legislative body. And, you know, when legislating or establishing the rules of behavior, there has to be some consensus on what those are. In the American system, the legislators are called 
or elected to represent the beliefs and the convictions, the morals of the constituents, the people who put them into office. And the common good or the general welfare and liberty of the governed has been kind of the central focus of our compact here in the United States. The opening words of the United States Constitution establish its intent as to form a more perfect union, to establish justice, to ensure domestic tranquility, to provide for the common defense, to promote the general welfare, and so forth. And to ensure the blessings of liberty is what is is put forward in our founding document. And though our nation may not be a perfect union or system, it has done considerably well ensuring those tenants since the nation declared independence in 1776. So all that really to say that societies cannot be maintained without some form of agreed upon legislation, establishing what is right and wrong. And then the fourth word, you cannot legislate morality. The word morality has some, some challenges because answering the question, what is morality is a harder question than you might think. The standard dictionary definition of morality is principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good or bad behavior. That's from the new Oxford American Dictionary. And I I don't really have a problem with that definition necessarily. There are, you know, that's a pretty good definition. The problem is, is that there are different ways that people in our culture define morality. Not everyone agrees upon that definition. There are a wide range of views on morality or what is called moral landscape or moral theory. Sorry, the, the landscape of moral theory is pretty broad when you're talking about this. So for example, there is a view, philosophical view as it relates to moral theory um, called consequentialism. And it defines or grounds morality by the consequences or the outcomes. What will be the outcome of this situation? An idea or an action is judged as good or bad based upon what it produces. That's consequentialism. And then you have utilitarianism. And utilitarianism, it determines what is right or wrong, what's moral, by an action's ability to promote the greatest happiness or the greatest well-being for the greatest number of people. So those are just two different perspectives of moral theory in our culture. And then, of course, myself and the others here at Enduring Word, we we come to the discussion of morality from a Judeo-Christian perspective, and that is that God defines what is right, wrong, good, or bad. And it, it is a virtue ethic established by the virtues and values of God as we find them in the scripture. Now, I could go on. There's all kinds of different ideas on moral theory, but this just gives you, you know, a view that there are three different views right there that make it hard to answer the question of what is morality. It doesn't take long for us to discover that we don't have a unified moral theory. Now, for the majority in the United States, at least for most of the history of the United States, a virtue ethic based upon the Judeo-Christian scriptures was the primary foundation foundation of morality. So that, that went pretty well for a while. The assertion that you cannot legislate morality... It, it really is something that comes up as individuals in our culture deviate from or reinterpret the principal underpinnings of what is right and wrong in our culture. And as our culture continu- continues to drift away from a biblical ethic, we can expect the challenges to a Judeo-Christian morality to increase. And this is evident that we are having such problems right now. And um, even in the sense that, you know, when people bring up this question, you cannot legislate morality. That, that's what they're going back to. They, they have a hard time with this issue. But moving away from the definitions of just the words there, 
I, I do want to point out, and I think it's worth acknowledging, that there are some places where we should probably agree with that statement, you cannot legislate morality. In some respects, it's right to acknowledge that this proposition is true in part. First, it, it is true, as even one of the principal authors of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, kind of alludes to in one of his letters, that the law does not and cannot make one righteous. Now, primarily when Paul is saying that in Romans, it's a theological statement, the law, speaking of the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, the, the Torah, it cannot make you or, or me judicially righteous before a perfectly holy God. There's no way that the law can make me righteous. But there's a practical side to this as well. One does not become a moral individual, individual that is good or upright, just by the dictates of the law. Now, that would be nice if we just told people do X, Y, and Z, and then you're going to be morally good and perfect. That would be wonderful. But as much as we might hope that that was true or possible, we recognize that legislation of moral statutes of right or wrong, they do not cause societies or individuals to um, become morally good. Laws can, and they do, govern the actions of those within a given society, they may promote the general welfare and even restrain evil, but good laws do not lead to perfectly good individuals or societies. We see that all around us constantly. Now that begs the deeper question uh, about the innate nature of human beings. Are, are we innately good or are we evil? And that's really beyond the scope of what I'm talking about here. At the very least, I've got to acknowledge I'm a Christian pastor, so I, I believe in original sin. I do not think um, that we are born perfectly good. I do not hold to that, that Rousseauian view of the innate human goodness of man. And Jesus certainly did not teach that we were innately good as well. In Mark chapter 7, he tells us very, very clearly in uh, verses 20 and on that it is out of the heart that precedes evil thoughts and evil actions. So we, we do have a problem with us being innately good. We are not. Now, all that to say, I do agree that we cannot make men good, morally upright by the dictates or legislation of goodness. So to say you cannot legislate morality is to say you cannot make people good just by telling them these are the laws that will make you good because we, we have this problem of original sin. Now, does that mean that we should not have law? I might deal with this a little bit more later, but no, no, it shouldn't. Good laws govern, they can govern the innate bad behavior of men. They might restrain evil. But since we cannot make people good by legislation, we might rightly add to this proposition, you cannot legislate morality. And we might say that you cannot legislate morality into man. And that's very clearly true. Second area that I agree with this is that we must acknowledge the truth of this proposition and that it would be unjust for me to force personally my views of what are right and wrong upon others. I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier as well. To say you cannot legislate morality in the very singular sense, you cannot legislate or impose your morality upon other people. There, there is some truth to that. It is wholly valid to assert that I do not personally have the legislative authority to dictate or to determine morality. I cannot impose my views of what is morally right or wrong upon you or upon society, even if I'm certain that my view is right. And so what that means is it really does require that we have a strong and persuasive civil discourse and debate in our society about what is right or wrong. And this is an area where we Christians, I, I think we, we could do better. We could do better in being more persuasive in, in sharing apologetically, giving a defense for the views that we have on what is right or wrong. 
And that does require longer conversations than just kind of a shouting match. You just can't do that. So we need to have persuasive civil discourse and debate in society expressing to people what we believe is wrong or right and why we believe that it is wrong or right. And then we need to work to elect better legislators and enact better laws for sure. So two points of agreement there with this idea you cannot legislate morality. Number one, I cannot impose my moral views upon somebody else. And number two, I cannot make people holy or good just by telling them these are the laws for that. Third, as a conservative, I'm wholeheartedly in agreement with a progressive who might say you cannot legislate morality if the morality that is being legislated is one that I find to be abhorrent in relation to my own personally held beliefs. If I find that their view is immoral, I, I don't want them to legislate their view. Non-believing individuals that hold a political view that is opposite of mine, shall we say, they don't want my moral views imposed upon them. And conversely, I don't want their moral views imposed upon me or society. Say very clearly. And, you know, Sanctity of Life Sunday was just last month. I believe that abortion is immoral. I think it's the killing of an innocent preborn child. Those on the opposite side of the debate, they don't want me to impose that moral view of abortion upon them or society. And so that does require that there be a persuasive civil debate in our society. That's been going on for a very long time. And sometimes it becomes rather uncivil, but we need to be persuasive and civil. Another thing, progressives believe that same-sex marriage is morally right and good. I don't want their moral views imposed upon society as it relates to that. And so those two examples, they open up the proverbial Pandora's box of debate and discussion, uh, which goes beyond the focus of my talk here. But, uh, but we, do, we do see that these are issues. They require civil conversation and debate. But they illustrate very clearly that those on the other side of the political spectrum are agreed. You cannot legislate morality, and I do not want their moral positions that I disagree with imposed upon me or vice versa. So it requires vigorous civil discourse, persuasive debate. On the other side of the political spectrum, we must civilly and persuasively defend our moral perspectives to try to move those things to be codified into law. So I've given three reasons why I would say I agree with the statement, you cannot legislate morality. I, I want to talk for just a moment about areas where I disagree with this. Though there are ways in which the proposition is true or right, there are clear points of argument against it as well. Chiefly, all laws, and this is very, very important, all laws are at some level or another a form of moral legislation. When I was having a conversation with someone recently about this very topic and the question to come up, is it true you cannot legislate morality? The question that I threw out is, are there any laws that are not some form of moral legislation. And we, we spent some time trying to figure it out. And I, I don't think that you could find one. There's always a deep motivation of morality behind every single law. Furthermore, it is evident that every culture that we can observe where human well-being and the common good have been increased, where they've grown, is a culture that has a common agreed upon moral code. And this becomes a real issue for us at this moment in our current cultural moment in our history here in the Western world, because we are seeing things fracture so much on what we agree as to what is right or wrong or good or evil, that we don't have that common moral code anymore. And that's going to lead to some real problems in our society, for sure. We're already seeing that in a big way. But those cultures that 
have, unfortunately, devolved into totalitarian states. They reveal that they have an underlying universal code, even in those sort of places. C.S. Lewis, he wrote in Mere Christianity and the Abolition of Man about these things. And the Apostle Paul also deals with this in Romans chapter 2, when he talks about the law written upon people, people's hearts. So every culture has this understanding of an internal uh, understanding of the law of what is right and wrong, even if we want to try and disagree about what those things are in this current moment that we live in. But um, these things are very clearly seen in, in every culture. So even in our founding documents here in the United States, we hold these truths to be self-evident, we said, that all men are created equal. So we recognize there's a, there's a moral underpinning or a law underneath everything. So while you can argue about the religious faith of the American founders, and it's been debated quite frequently, there's little argument that they had a strongly principled view of a natural law that they believed in. So another point of argument with this, and return to, for a moment, something that I, I hinted at previously, and that is the idea that we cannot legislate morality assumes that human beings are innately good, and that if left to themselves, they will tend toward good behavior and away from evil. I was just listening to a conversation yesterday, a podcast. Um, yes, I was listening to Joe Rogan talk with Lex Friedman, it just came out the other day, and Lex Friedman made that comment just about 20 minutes into the conversation, that he's, he does think that Human beings, for the most part, are, are innately good. On that issue, I would have a disagreement with them. I just don't think the evidence is there. Um, now, I, I want to do my best to not argue against that position merely from a theological perspective on the innate sinfulness of man as we find it in the scriptures. But regardless, I find it a pretty dubious claim just by the mere observation of humanity to argue for the fundamental goodness of man. We are morally broken. Now, that does not mean that the irreligious cannot be good. They, they can. But it does mean that malevolent evil is the inevitable outcome when natural law that is in the conscience is abandoned or seared. And we see that quite a bit. So there are certainly other arguments against the proposition you cannot legislate morality. But um, this is going kind of long, so I just want to wrap it up. I want, I want to suffice, you know, kind of wind it down to this very basic issue. The proposition you cannot legislate morality is a flawed proposition. We can remove the agreements for it or the arguments against the statement. You cannot legislate morality is in a very real sense a proposition that is a self-refuting claim. The individual that confidently asserts that you cannot or should not legislate morality is in effect legislating a moral claim or moral position. It is an ethical, moral statement. You should not do exactly what I'm telling you that you should not do. And so that becomes a major issue. So I could go on lots of different things on that specific topic about legislating morality, but um, I think that that's probably a good place to transition away from that and move to some questions that have been coming in. In fact, I want to start with some questions that I had received previously. First one is this. Is there a way to know if our prayers are being hindered by some type of sin, either by those that we pray for or for ourselves? So uh, very good question. Can we know that our prayers are being hindered in any way by our own sin or the sin of somebody else? In, in thinking about the idea of our prayers being hindered, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, a word that Peter shared, if I can bring this up, 
First Peter chapter three is where we find it. Peter says in First Peter chapter three, verse seven, husbands, he's speaking to husbands, he speaks to wives just before this, but right after he speaks to wives, he speaks to husbands, he says, Husbands likewise dwell with your wife with understanding, giving honor to your wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter there does allude to the idea that your prayers could be hindered. And that that is probably where this question is coming from. So this individual is asking, you know, is there a way to know that my prayers are being hindered? Well, I think one of the ways to know is if your prayers are not being answered. <laughs> now, that's not to say that every single time you pray something and ask God for something that he's going to say yes and he's going to do it. I mean, generally speaking, I think that you could say that there are kind of three answers to prayer from God. One, he says yes, which I think a lot of us really are grateful for. Um, but then sometimes he says no. And in the long run, I think a lot of times we do discover that we are thankful for the no that God gives. And then the third thing that I think God generally might answer to a prayer is wait. So yes, no, or wait. And I think there's even a, a song out there, you know, thank God for his unanswered prayers. And, and I think looking back over my life, I, I'm thankful for some unanswered prayers. But one way to know whether or not your prayers are being hindered is that they're, they're not being answered. Um, but I think it's also important to recognize um, James. The Apostle James brings up an issue in James chapter 4 about prayer. And he says in James chapter 4, verse 2, you lust, uh, I'll skip up to verse 1, give context. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war within your members? You lust and you do not have, you murder and covenant and cannot obtain, you fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And then, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So this is speaking in the context of prayer in this passage. And James will talk about prayer later on in James chapter 5 as well, talking about the effective fervent prayers of a righteous individual. They avail much. He's talking about Elijah was a man who prayed diligently. So we have this teaching from James that we should pray diligently but we also have this warning that maybe our prayers will not be answered if we are asking purely from a selfish, self-focused um, motivation. So you ask amiss because, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You ask and you do not receive. So it is possible that you might have your prayers hindered because you're not doing like what Peter teaches in 2 Peter chapter 3, and you're not walking in rightness before God. Or you may have your prayers hindered because you are asking them kind of from an impure motivation, or we just need to be more diligent and persistent in our prayers. Like Jesus in his teaching about asking and seeking and knocking and just continually perpetually asking and seeking knocking. I find that in my own prayers, I can be sometimes too quick to give up in prayer. And so we need to just continue to seek the Lord in prayer. And we need to even ask Lord, as David did in the Psalms, Lord, search me and know me, see if there's any wicked way in me and, and lead me in the way of everlasting. So we want to make sure that we are seeking to walk in alignment with God. And this is one of the key things that I think that sometimes we miss about prayer. I think sometimes we think that our prayers are intended to move God. But I think very many times in my own experiences, and as I find the scriptures, God is seeking to move us into a place of being in alignment with his will. We see this from Jesus when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, not my will, but yours be done. And even James talks about this as well, that our attitude should be, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. So we want to make sure they were walking in that way. So 
Good question for the person who sent that to me. Next question. Can people accidentally do the will of Satan, satanic things, or antichrist things, like without meaning or intending to, perhaps like how the Pharisees were merely protecting the sanctity of Yahweh, from their point of view, by doing the will of the accuser? This is a great question. Can we stumble, if you will, as Christians into doing something that is not the will of God, but actually the will of the devil, of the enemy. That's a frightening thing to consider. And the most clear thing that comes to my mind is that that great conversation between Peter and Jesus in the, um, in the gospel. Let's see here. Got to make sure I have all my, my things here. In the Gospel of Matthew, I'm thinking of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, Jesus is with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, and they see all of this worship of pagan deities there. And he asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? They say, well, some say you're this, some say you're that. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then this back and forth between Peter and Jesus, he says, Simon, Barjona, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And he goes on to talk about, you know, on this rock, I shall build my church. A lot of discussions about that whole thing there on this rock. But immediately after that, Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem and that there's going to be, he's going to be delivered up and crucified. And Peter begins to rebuke him. And Jesus says to him, if I can bring this up on the screen, I believe I can. He says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. What a striking statement. I mean, Peter has just gone from speaking the words of God. God has divinely given him this inspiration. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And a moment later, Jesus is rebuking Satan or rebuking Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. That is a striking declaration. And so Peter, without realizing it, he thinks he's speaking right and true good things when he says, no, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. But he stumbles into this. Another one that comes to mind there is kind of what's brought up in the question about the Pharisees. I mean, the Pharisees thought that they were doing the work of God. And I think of Saul of Tarsus before he was Paul the apostle. He persecuted people thinking he was doing the will of God. And he was actually doing the will of Satan. In the Gospel of John, Jesus even speaks to the religious leaders and says to them that you are in effect, of your father, the devil, which is a striking thing to say. Okay, some other questions that have been sent through, and I just want to thank Devin and Andrea and Nathan who are helping with this. We have such a great team at Enduring Word. They, they go through, they're watching the conversation online. Uh, so the next question here, could you clarify lukewarm church in Revelation 3.16 are both cold and hot true believers. Could you clarify the lukewarm church? So let me bring this up. Um, Revelation, Revelation 3, 16 is the reference here. And this is in the seven letters to the seven churches. Jesus wrote these letters to the seven churches of Asia. And one of them, the last church, is the church in Laodicea, which is the lukewarm church. And he says there, 
in Revelation 3.16, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And so the, the question here is, has something to do with, is it okay to be a cold Christian? You know, what is Jesus saying here? Well, if you want to say that a, a hot Christian is someone who's on fire for Christ, doing what is right and good and walking in truth, that's, that's what obviously I would want to see. I think that's what God would want to see in the life of a believer. They're on fire. And then on the other side of that spectrum would be the cold person who is far from the Lord. And, you know, it's as if you took a coal out of the fire, the fire, the coals are keeping it hot. But if you take it and you put it aside, it's going to get cold relatively quickly. So I would assume that the cold person in that passage would be kind of the black backslidden person who's not walking in faith and they're actually living in sin. And so it, it seems as if Jesus is saying, I would rather that than lukewarm. So that's an amazing thing to say. What does he mean? I think he might mean this. It is a horrible position to be in where you've got one foot in Christ and one foot in the world and you're lukewarm. You are that double-minded person who's unstable in all of their ways. And Jesus is in effect saying, you know, I'd rather you be living out in the world because then it's clear. Then it's clear that you need to repent. Then it's clear that you need to be evangelized and called to repentance. But the person, there's a, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but I think it's probably a reality. There are probably a lot of people in churches all throughout the United States and throughout the world who are living a lukewarm existence. They are a part of the church. They attend church. They might even be a part of a Bible study. They might even serve at a church or give to a church. But they also in their life have secret hidden things, pornography, an alcohol problem, Maybe they don't treat their spouse very well. Maybe they don't treat their employees very well, whatever it may be. And so they are a double-minded individual. And they can live in such a way that they kind of get a pass because it's not clear to everybody around them that this person needs to repent. But the person who's walked away completely and they're not involved in fellowship and they're living in very clear, open, and obstinate sin, it's, it's very clear and we can easily call them back to repentance. So Jesus says, I, I would that you would rather either be hot or cold, but since you are lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. It's a striking word picture from the Lord there. Something to really meditate on. Next question, Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. If we are not under the old covenant, but the new, who is Jesus? Why did the man with leprosy need to follow the Mosaic law if he knew who Jesus was? because Jesus had yet to die for our sins. So let me bring up this passage of scripture, Luke 5, 12 through 14. Let's see if I can put this on the screen. And it happened when he was in a certain city that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus and he fell down on his face and implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Uh, let's see. Oh, there we go. And then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one but to go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for the cleansing as, <clears throat> as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. The key part of what we see here in this passage that I think you should key in on, and thank you for this question here, the key thing you should put, focus in on is the last words. Go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them. 
he did not need to go and follow the law of Moses to be cleansed. He's already been cleansed. Jesus has just cleansed him, but he is going as a testimony to the priest. Why is this? Because I, if I'm correct, the only one that I know of in the Old Testament scriptures that was healed of leprosy was uh, Naaman the leper, who was from Syria. And he comes in through the ministry of Elisha, was it, I believe? He is healed of his leprosy. So this is a non-Jewish individual. Maybe you could make the case that uh, Miriam, the sister of Moses, when she was struck with leprosy, maybe you could make the case that she was also healed. Whatever the case, very few people in Old Testament history were um, healed of leprosy. And it would be a sign of the Messiah, that the Messiah had the power and the authority to heal someone of a disease that at that time was uncurable, incurable. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, go and show yourself to the priests so that they can see what has taken place. This is a testimony to the priests and not something for his cleansing. So um, great question. Really like that one there. Another question here. Where in scripture did Jesus claim to be the most high God, Yah? Where in scripture did Jesus claim to be the most high God? Well, I mean, the, the passage of scripture that shows Jesus most clearly as God is what you're going to find in the Gospel of John. And we can say that pretty definitively that it's in the Gospel of John, because in the Gospel of John, we see the response of the religious leaders to the claims of Christ. And what was their response? Their response was to put him to death because of blasphemy. So there are those that you will interact with, I think most specifically some who will knock on your door from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or from the Watchtower Society who will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Um, that's just a, a, a too much of a surface level reading of the Gospel of John or the Gospels, period, because you're not recognizing that the people that Jesus was speaking to, and most specifically the religious leaders in the Gospel of John, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And so, you know, when he says, before Abraham was, I am, very clearly the religious leaders knew exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be the I am that we're introduced to at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. So, uh, I think that would be the best way to answer or address that question. How did the religious leaders respond to Jesus's claims? They knew exactly what he was saying, and their plan was to kill him when they saw that. Next question. Should pastors announcing that the Great Tribulation has started when it hasn't recant publicly? So should pastors recant publicly when they announce that the Great Tribulation has started when it hasn't? I mean, I would... I would hope so. You know, if you make a claim and it turns out to be wrong, you know, if you're speaking prophetically, which is dangerous ground, you know, you're on thin ice, shall we say. I, I think you should be very careful about what you say and how you say it. And if you, if you misrepresent the Lord, you should be very careful about what you are doing and what you are saying. So should they recant it publicly? I would hope that they would, but I don't think that they will because a lot of times these individuals, they are... Um, their platform, the position that they have, is because of the things that they have said. And so, so many times we see this, it's like, well, I was just off a little bit. Now we need to set a new date. Um, so yeah, I wish that they would recant publicly. If you're going to speak on behalf of God and you're going to speak in a manner that is, um, you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, and you're going to speak wrong on his behalf. In so many ways, you just give the enemies of God an opportunity to blaspheme in doing those sorts of things. So I would say, yeah, they should recant publicly. Adrian Kahn asks, I understand that we are not under the law. However, circumcision and forbidding of eating blood predates the law. 
Should we still obey these laws? That's a great question. Um, When we get to the New Testament, we look at the ministry and life of Jesus Christ. He comes as a fulfillment of all the law, not just the law of Moses, but going all the way back. He is the fulfillment of all of the law. Now, there is, when you get to Acts chapter 15 and the gospel begins to move out into non-Jewish territory and you have the Jerusalem council, there's a discussion there about some of these specific things having to do with, you know, um, you know, eating of meats sacrificed to idols and eating of animals that still have the blood within them. And I think what you have there is really a cultural issue is that, um, there's an exhortation to the Gentile believers who came from a background that was different than the Jewish believers that you, you need to be culturally sensitive and aware of how you are interacting with other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, um, because of where those people came from in the past. Now, circumcision does predate the law, but it is a sign of the covenant of the descendants of Abraham. So the descendants of Abraham, through Isaac, Jacob, and so on, down from there, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. So we have a new sign of the covenant that we have in Christ, and I would say that it is believer's baptism. So circumcision does predate the law, but it's really something to do with a different covenant, covenant of Abraham. And so not really something that we should uh, necessarily connect ourselves to or or don't need to. Now, the eating of blood, I would say that from a health standpoint, it's probably not the best as far as I've seen before. So, you know, I guess you could follow that if you want to, but we do have a liberty in Christ and we're told that we should not use our liberty as an opportunity for sin. SNL asks, where can we find direction against recreational drug use in the scripture? I do believe God does not intend for us to use recreational drugs. drugs. However, just curious about if it appears in the Bible. So in the Old Testament and New Testament, we, we, you know, they didn't have the word like we do, you know, narcotics. But in the Greek, they do have the word pharmakeia, from which we, you know, take that, we adopt that into English, and we talk about pharmaceuticals and pharmacies and so forth. Pharmakeia seems to have a very direct connection to what we would call narcotics today. And then if you go into Old Testament times, there was um, prohibitions against sorcery. And if you really do a deep dive on what is being talked about in those passages, there does seem to be some sort of narcotic use that was involved in some of these sorcery types of things. And there has been some recent archaeological evidence in the last, you know, 20 years or so that suggests that there was drug use in pagan temples and um, all kinds of different things, uh, Eleusinian mysteries and all kinds of crazy stuff with pagan temples where there was incense that was offered that had um, cannabis in it. So in the pagan temples, these things were being used, but God had forbid his people to be involved in sorcery or pharmakeia. So in that respect, I would say that we we should be very, very careful as it relates to these things. And I do think that on many of these substances, they have a way of opening us up to other dimensional realities, spiritual dimensions. Understand we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So there is a spiritual dimension. And I think that narcotic drug use can open people up to those sorts of things. Now that does beg the question or cause us to ask the question about what about using these things medicinally for someone who's going through cancer treatment or whatever it may be? Is that okay? And for that, I would go back to the Old Testament. I don't remember the reference at the moment. I can find it later, but uh, there's an exhortation, give strong drink to him who is perishing. There is this sense in which alcohol in ancient times was used medicinally, give strong drink to him who is perishing. 
Um, and so under the supervision of a doctor, then maybe you can make the case. I mean, there's a lot of pharmaceuticals that would be schedule one narcotics if they were just out and about, but you can get them from a doctor or from a pharmacy. And those things can be used for various treatments of ailments or illnesses. But I do think that those things can be a real, they can become a real snare. So the New Testament admonition in Ephesians, do not be drunk with wine, which is excess. I would say that any sort of, any sort of narcotic substance or chemical substance that brings you under its, its hold or affects consciousness, you got to be really, really careful with those sorts of things. And, um, and I would say you can very easily fall into being drunk with wine, according to what Ephesians says there. Come Israel, seeing how great America has become as a kingdom, would it be in the Bible? Since all kingdom are listed, did God forget about America or is America Babylon the great? Well, there's a lot of great nations that are not spoken of in the Bible. It's as if the focal point of scripture is in the, you know, as it's been said before, the epicenter of where God is working his redemptive plan. But I mean, there's not a lot of mention of, you know, yeah, I know there's going to be people who say, well, Russia's mentioned here and there. Well, that's interpretive. I mean, maybe. But, you know, the issues of Asia, China, China is a great world power. You know, the United Kingdom is not mentioned. The United States does not appear to be mentioned. So just because it's not mentioned doesn't necessarily mean that God overlooked it or anything. Now, you can make a lot of bad extrapolations from the idea that, you know, America is not mentioned in scripture. A lot of people have. And I think you have to be careful to not do those sorts of things. But there's a lot of things that are not mentioned in the Bible that exist And um, I mean, black holes are not existed in the Bible, but they exist. So God's focus in the scriptures is to reveal his nature and his will so that we might know him and know the way that we can come to him. So um, the, the focus of scripture is really largely in those areas. One final question, we'll end with this. Alfredo asks the question, why did God give certain individuals a genetically higher IQ than others? Does this justify social Darwinism? Man, that's a great question. Um, I mean, you can, you can move from just issues of IQ to issues of disabilities. You can move to all kinds of different issues like this. Um, two things immediately come to mind. One, we should recognize that the effects of the fall are massive. So, through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin and death spread to all men for all sin. I mean, what is it? Romans 5.12. Recognize that that is a, a very huge reality that has affected everything, even down to, I would say, genetic levels. Genetic mutation that has led to disease, that has led to mental illness, that has led to all kinds of different things. Um, that, that sort of stuff is, I would say, the result of the fall. That's the first thing that I would say. Second thing I would say is that if a person, we, we live in a very strange time and place in history in the sense that we live in a knowledge society, as it has been called, which means that you're going to have a very hard time succeeding in American or Western culture in the 21st century if you cannot function at a certain level of ability to handle abstract information, which is really what you're studying when you're studying the issues of, of uh, intelligence, IQ. The problem is, is that there's a very wide spectrum 
as it relates to IQ. Does that mean that God has no use for all people? No, God has a use for all of us. And we all are a part of the body and God has a specific intended purpose for each of us, a work that he desires that we would be a part of. So whether you have the capacity to land rockets on, you know, drone ships out in the middle of the Atlantic or the Pacific from SpaceX, you know, because you've got an amazing intellect or not, God still has a purpose and a plan for you in his kingdom. And as it relates to kind of moving that to the issue of issues of disability, you know, in John chapter nine, there's the question brought to Jesus about a man who was born blind. Did this man sin or his parents that he would be born blind? And Jesus said, it's not an issue of him or his parents sinning, but for the glory of God. This illness was for the glory of God. So recognize that God can use whatever ability or disability that you have mentally, physically, emotionally, whatever it is, he can use whatever ability or disability that you have for his glory and for his kingdom. And I would hope that you would recognize that God has a purpose and plan for every single one of us. So... Well, this is, I, I have one more question that is a fascinating question. Exodus chapter 4, verse 24 through 26. Uh, all right, we'll, we'll bring this up on the screen, and I'm going to close with this one. Devin, thank you very much for Exodus 4, 24 through 26. All right, uh, little setup. Exodus chapter 3, and I was just studying through this this morning, in fact, because uh, the message I'm teaching at my church this Sunday, it's connected with us. Exodus chapter 3, um, Jesus, I'm sorry, not Jesus, Moses has the interaction with um, with God at the burning bush. God calls him to go to Egypt and, you know, set my people free. And in Exodus chapter 4, you have this very weird situation between Moses and his wife. We read this, and it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to kill Moses, then Zipporah, his wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So God, he, let him go. And then he said, You are a husband, or she said, You are a husband of blood to me because of this circumcision. Uh, we have a very interesting situation going on here in this passage. And there's been a lot of ink spilled, if you will, on this. A lot of commentators, and I'm sure Pastor David has some great things on it on EnduringWord.com. I would say this much as it relates to this specific issue. Um, <laughs> it appears that Moses, who had, I believe, two sons at this point, but maybe just one son, uh, it appears that he had not circumcised his son, which was a sign of the covenant between Abraham and his descendants, and Moses being one of the descendants, did not have a son that was circumcised. So he was not fulfilling the law that God had called him to as it related to that. Now, there's speculation among commentators. Was it because his wife, Zipporah, being that she was a Midianite, she was not Jewish, she did not want to do this with her son, and so she had hindered Moses from doing this? That's one of the questions that people bring up. And so was this an issue that was hindering Moses from doing the work that God had called him to do? Apparently it was, so much so that it says that God set out to kill him, which is pretty powerful. So I would say that one of the applications we can draw from this is that if you set out to serve and follow the Lord, you need to make sure that your house is in order. You need to make sure that you have set yourself to do the things that are right before a holy God, if you're going to represent him. 
And Moses here is going to represent God before Pharaoh. And there was an area of a lack of obedience, apparently. And so God says, you got to deal with this. And apparently Zipporah knew that that's what needed to be dealt with in that situation. And so she, um, she set out to deal with it. So very fascinating passage of scripture. And um, whoop, kind of brings us to the, the end of our, our time together today. Um, thank you all for tuning in. Make sure you send in your questions uh, throughout the week or next time. Pastor David, I believe, will be back, back here next week uh, to do the question and answer. But I hope this has been helpful to you. God bless you wherever you are. And may the Lord keep you and bless you and direct you. God bless. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.